0: Well, good morning, morning. Shelburne Street. This is not my first time ever being here, uh, but I just want to say how thankful I am to be here again. The first time we were ever here was back in 2001, me and my wife, she was my fiance at the time, or actually we were just dating, weren't we? We were just dating at the time, get these dates straight. But uh, uh, we came up here for a campaign um, from Cascade College, and the church looked a lot different than it does today back then. We didn't almost recognize it when we drove up this morning, but you have changed, and I just want to thank you for what you have done in the past to encourage people. I mean, who knows where I would have been if you all had not been here before. So um, thank you. We're so glad to be here. And uh, I I am a little bit... I am a little bit worried about Travis, though. Um, I don't know how to put this. Travis may be one of the biggest Bronco fans of the nation, if not the world. And he is heading into enemy territory this morning. And so we don't get to conquering the enemy territory till next week in the story. And so I'm really concerned about him this week. I, I hope you have been praying for him. Um, you know, uh, preaching in front of people is a nerve-wracking thing, but um, uh, I want to open up with a story about an old preacher. Um, This preacher, he was needing a job, and and sadly, a lot of churches just don't love old preachers like they should, you know, and so sometimes it's hard for them to get jobs, but this old preacher, he was very, very concerned about his, his age, and so he's very cautious about what he would tell people when he interviewed for his jobs. But he ended up getting a job out in the country at this small church. And the first Sunday, he preached for five minutes. And there were some people who raised their eyebrows about that, and they talked to the elders about that. And The next Sunday, though, he preached for 25 or 30 minutes, and everyone seemed pretty happy about that. But the the third Sunday, he preached for over two hours long. And a lot of calls came into the elders that night, and so they decided, we need to call this preacher in and talk to him about it. And so they called him in, and they talked to him, and they said, hey, you know, we have a lot of people who are concerned about your inconsistency in your sermons and your preaching length. And the man said, well, I think I can explain. You see, when I interviewed with you guys, I don't want you to know that I wore dentures. And so for the first Sunday, I wore my new dentures, and they just hurt They were incredibly, incredibly painful. So it was all I could do to preach for five minutes long. And he said, the next Sunday, though, I I, I had gone to the doctors and had my dentures repaired, and so the next Sunday, they felt pretty good, and I preached for about 25 or 30 minutes. And that's about what I usually preach. And they said, yeah, but last Sunday, you preached for over two hours. How do you explain that? And he said, oh, well, that's easy. I was in a hurry, and I put my wife's dentures in by accident. So... (laughs) I just, I just tell the story, folks. I don't make them up. Now, Who likes to wait for something longer than it ought to take? You know, just last Sunday, uh, I, I, it snowed where we were at in Central Kitsap. It snowed. And so I was one of the first people to the building, and I crept out of my driveway, backed out, and I drove to the church ever so delicately, and I pulled into the parking lot. I mean, there was cars on the side of the road and there were things going on. And I I pulled into my parking space. I made it to the office before anyone else did with snow on the ground. And I just kind of let out this sigh of relief, like, oh, I am here. But recently, I also played a, placed an, or, an order for something online. And uh, when I placed this order, I was worried if it would come to me or not. And so I checked the, the shipping status for this purchase at USPS.com. And on their web- website, it said, severe Winter weather is causing delays and disruptions in the Pacific Northwest. And I literally thought this. Those guys will make up any excuse not to get my package to me on time. I mean, I literally thought that. We do not like to wait for things, do we? At least not for things that take longer than they ought to take. But taking too long is especially tragic in the spiritual arena. And we catch a glimpse of this in chapter 5 of the story this week. And for those of you who are guests here for the first time, perhaps the Shelburne Street Church of Christ has been going through uh, a a series called The Story. And The Story is basically a a collection of verses, of of chapters out of the Bible. And it's it's Genesis through Revelation. These, These verses are captured from Genesis through Revelation. And they tell the big story of God in the Bible. And it's a really great way to go through a large chunk of the Bible. And so if you haven't gotten your free copy of the story yet, the Shelburne Street wants to give you one if you're a visitor for the first time. If you're just visiting out of town with family, sorry, you got to pay them money. But if you are going to be hanging with us for a while, we want you to journey along with the Shelburne Street Church, and we want to give you a free copy This morning. So, this morning we are in chapter 5 of the story. And basically, chapter 5 is large portions from the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. It basically tells the story of Israel taking a long time to get to the promised land. And we want to ask the question what took so long? What took the children of Israel so long to get where they were going? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 2, it has Moses preaching this series of sermons to the Israelites just before they get into the promised land. And, the, and, and in, these, in these sermon series, it's, there's these interesting words at the very, very beginning of what he says. And they're actually kind of this parenthetical thought. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 2. It should be on the screen there for you. It says this. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb, and that's where Mount Sinai is located, where Moses was given the Ten Commandments, to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. And the Mount Seir Road, that's where um, the spies were sent in to go uh, spy out the land. So it takes 11 days to get that great mass of people from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. But I want you to look at the next four words of Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 3. It says this, In the 40th year. What took so long? It took less than two weeks to get from Sinai to the promised land. So why did it take 40 years for them to get there? Why was Israel made wander? Well, last weekend, I think you all probably went through the Ten Commandments of God laying down the law to Moses, right? So that Moses could lay down the law to the Israelites. Because the last thing that God wants to do is really for the Israelites in their freedom to go into this new promised land and in their freedom have no boundaries at all. Because that would be the worst thing in the world for them to have, right? And so God lays down these laws, these Ten Commandments last week, and He also sends in some spies into this land. And the children did such a good job of telling the story this morning of 12 spies going into the land. And they're sent in to spy the land for 40 days. And when they spy on the land, they find that the land is good for farming and for growing food. And it's already got some huge fruit in it, right? I mean, if you have to carry grapes on a pole between two people, that's some massive fruit, right? But it also has some fortified cities as well. It has, not to mention, some big old people. The Anakites, They were giants in those lands. And when the spies returned from their 40 days of spying, two of them say, We can take this land. It is exceedingly good. We can take it. Trust that God will give it to us. But then there were ten of them who said, Are you crazy? There's giants up in there. There's giants in that land. They'll squash us like bugs. And unfortunately, Israel's faith follows that faith of the ten spies. Their faith in God was too small for such a big challenge. They didn't believe the God that they believed in. And this morning, I I really only have time to kind of go through God's response to them in their disobedience or in their disbelief. And So we have a couple of texts. They're large texts this morning if you want to be following along in Numbers. The first is from Numbers chapter 14, verses 10 and You can find it on page 76 and 77 in your copies of the story. All right, Numbers chapter 14, uh, verse 10 through 19. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Who's the them? Joshua and Caleb. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. That was God speaking to Moses. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud By day and a pillar of fire by night. And if you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, The Lord was not able to bring these people into the land He promised them on oath, so He slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation in accordance with your great love. Forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time that they left Egypt until now. Now, if I count right, this is the fourth time, the fourth time that, and this is just in the book of Exodus, that Moses actually intercedes and has to intercede for these People, the Israelites, the fourth time. The first time he did it with the golden calf. Do you remember that? The golden calf, he has to intercede for them. He did it when they grumbled about their hardship in Numbers chapter 11. And he did it on Miriam's behalf, if you remember when God was going to strike her with leprosy in Numbers chapter 12. And now the fourth time, for the fourth time, Moses is speaking on behalf of the people who have made his life miserable, absolutely miserable, And this is the second time Moses has done so and refused to take God's offer of building a nation through him. It's the second time he's refused that from God. So Moses is so close to realizing his dream here. He could taste it. He could be in the promised land. He could start over with God, just he and God. He could do it. But he opts out. Why? Why? Why does he opt out of this amazing opportunity? I think it's because Moses was less concerned about his glory and more concerned about God's glory. All throughout this prayer, Moses doesn't say one word about the Israelites' merit. And the reason why is because the Israelites had no merit, did they? They had no merit. But what he does appeal to is the character of God. Verse 17, may the Lord's strength be displayed. And in verse 18, in accordance with your great love. Moses was not concerned that he looked great in the eyes of men, but he was very concerned that God did. And Moses points out this. He says, God, here's what's going to happen. You have every right to wipe out these people. You do. But here's how it's going to play out in the papers I know what they're going to say in Canaan. I know what they're going to say in Egypt. When they hear you have done this, they're going to say it's, because of the, it's not because of the iniquity of Israel. It's because of the inability of Yahweh. They're going to say you couldn't finish what you started. And so Moses would not have his inheritance if it meant sacrificing a single ray of God's glory. What he's basically saying is, I don't want men to think more of me if it means they're going to think less of you. Well, by the way, I think it's... That's what God really wanted all along. I, I don't think God really wanted to destroy the Israelites. I think God was looking for the kind of heart that Moses displayed there. I think God was really testing Moses' heart here. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 10, check this out. Moses revisits this occasion. Deuteronomy 10 verse 10 says this, Now, I had stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights, as I did the first time. And the Lord listened to me at this time also. It was not His will to destroy you. Now, one of the things that I want you to remember this morning is I want you to remember that Moses was a man of intercession. When you think about Moses, who was maybe the greatest leader in all of history, I want you to remember not so much the miracles or the speeches or the charisma that Moses had. I want you to remember the man who prayed. Forty days and for forty nights on two different occasions He wrestled with God to save a people that kept ripping his heart out. Moses wouldn't let go of God, and he wouldn't let go of Israel either. And he brought the two together. And I want you to notice that that God forgave the sin of Israel. But the God who forgives is also the God that protects his honor. And so we read in Numbers 14.20 what God declared on page 77 in the story. Numbers 14:20 The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Now we have to skip about 40 days here because remember he's petitioning day after day, Moses is petitioning God, forgive these people, forgive these people. And nevertheless, verse 21, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs performed in Egypt and in the wilderness But who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because of my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route of the Red Sea. You've got to know Moses here was probably just, his heart was sinking at this moment when he heard God say this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In the wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years or old or more who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said you would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness, until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each Of the 40 days you have explored the land, you will suffer for your sins. Now, wait a second. I thought God just said that He would forgive them. But He says, You will suffer for your sins. And know, you will suffer for your sins, and know what it is like to have Me against you. Verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against Me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about him. These men who were responsible for spreading that bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went and explored the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. God said to Moses, I have forgiven their sins. And then just a few words later, he says the word, nevertheless, right? It is God's prerogative to forgive and still discipline those who treat him with contempt. The God of grace is also the God of justice. The same God who is slow to anger and abounding in love is the same God who does not leave the guilty unpunished. Both of those phrases are a part of God's glory. And you notice how God's penalty is laced with irony here? Did you notice that? He says, I'm going to do the very things I heard you say. For example, God said, I heard you say, if you go into Canaan, your bodies are going to fall. Well, guess what? Your bodies are going to fall, but they're not going to fall in Canaan. No, they're going to fall in the wilderness outside of Canaan. And you're going to bury each other. He said, I heard you say that if you go into Canaan, your children were going to be captured. Well, you know what? Your kids are not going to be captured. The ones that you said will be captured and mistreated, they're the ones that will have a future now in Canaan. They're the ones who will inherit what you were afraid to take. And here's the irony of it all. Israel was so afraid of the Canaanites that they never stopped to think about how afraid they were. The Canaanites were of them. They were terrified. Do you remember? Well, we're not getting into it ne- till next week. But when Joshua sends in some spies into the land, 40 years later, these spies take refuge. There's a prostitute in the land who, who gives them protection and hides them. I mean, the Bible, of all the books, <laughs> the Bible is very interesting. I mean, a prostitute takes them in and hides them, okay? And, and while they're there, she tells them these words. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did at Sihon, uh, did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Did you notice that 40 years after the Red Sea, 40 years after the Red Sea, they're still talking about it in Canaan? Isn't that incredible? They were afraid of the God who was with these strange Hebrew people. The Hebrew people were made to conquer But instead, they were made to wander. But even more tragic was their children. Can you imagine being an 18-year-old boy or girl at that time? Can you? And realizing that for the next 40 years, your life is going to be about making tents and digging graves because of the decision of the generation before you someone else's unbelief. In fact, you might say that this was the reason that Moses didn't even get to go into the promised land. Now, I know that it's in Numbers chapter 20 later on that we find out it's because he struck a rock at Meribah, right? But just think, if they had gone into the promised land in Numbers chapter 13, what happened at the rock in Numbers 20 would have never happened, right? Moses would have been able to see the promised land. So, Much tragedy grows out of this story. Here's a generation that saw plagues, that crossed uh, the Red Sea on dry land. They could have been the greatest generation in the history of Israel. But you know what they're known for? They're known for funerals. That's what they're known for. They're a generation out in the desert that their children are just waiting for them to die. They didn't believe the God that they believed in, and they were judged. But I want to make something clear, and we talked about it a little bit in class. In fact, if you don't come to class, you need to come to class because there's some great things that you learned in class today. Um, thank you for the class this morning, sir. Appreciate it. But in class, we learned that there's a grace in this story as well. There's grace in while we acknowledge God's justice, I don't want you to miss the grace that's here either. Don't get the impression that after this lesson, that Israel learned how to behave themselves. Because they didn't. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Acts chapter 18, verse 13, for about 40 years he endured their conduct in the wilderness. He endured it for 40 years. And then Moses also reminds them, right before they enter the promised land in Deuteronomy 9 and verse 5. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what He swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. They didn't finally get to Canaan and get to settle down because they behaved themselves. They got to Canaan the same way that you and I get to go to heaven. Because it's a good thing that God remembers His promises. It's a good thing. God will never make us wonder about His faithfulness. He will never break a promise and make us wonder if He might do it again. And so, real quick, I just want to give you three takeaways this morning, just just really quickly, from this story. Now, this is a discouraging story. I understand that. It's kind of a challenge to write to you today. But... It's written for our encouragement as well. And so I want you to see this. The first takeaway is this. No amount of sorrow can undo the temporal consequences of sin. No amount of sorrow can undo the temporal consequences to sin. Let me explain what I mean here. We must not allow our confidence in the love of God to erode our convictions in the justice of God. The God who is slow to anger and abounding in love is the God that punishes sin. Both of those phrases are a part of His glory. I want you to see see how the psalmist puts it in Psalms 99.8. He was talking about this generation that we're talking about today, Psalms 99.8. Lord our God, You answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though You punished their misdeeds. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says God would be mocked if people didn't reap what they sowed. Now, what that means is that God can forgive sins. He can forgive sins, but he allows us to experience the discipline that comes from disobedience. In his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, Jim Simbala, he tells the story of Ricardo. Jim and his church would travel down into the salt mines, it was called. It's a place where, uh, it was kind of this place under the bridge where a lot of, Men were homeless, but also um, there were a lot of men down there uh, dressed up in drag and, and selling their services to people. And so they, this Jim's church would go down there and feed, give them food and blankets and, and, and feed them. And uh, while down there, Ricardo heard about the story of Jesus. And he thought, maybe my life could change too. You see, Ricardo was the guy who introduced all the young men to prostitution and to drugs. And so it was a surprise to Jim when he sees him in the church that morning. And he sees him there and he says, Honey, believe it or not, that's, that's a man right there. Because he dressed in drag his whole, his whole life, pretty much. And so Ricardo started learning about Jesus. As a matter of fact, the men of the church had to teach him how to be a man. They said, No, you don't cross your legs like that. You cross your legs like this. And they, they taught him, piece by piece, how to become a man again. And so Ricardo ended up, he actually ended up getting married, and he moved to Texas. And one day, Jim, the minister, he got this call. Ricardo was in the hospital because he was dying of days. And Jim said at that moment, he thought, I know that God does not want this man to die right now. And so he called his church together, and he and his church prayed for Ricardo to recover and it's amazing because Ricardo ended up doing a U-turn. His vitals came back and everything. He ended up recovering from being in the hospital. And he showed up at the church one day, and they said, you know, Ricardo, we wanted to get your testimony on film. And so Ricardo put his testimony on film, and his testimony of what he's been through, this was in Brooklyn, in the salt mines, what he'd been through, and how he came to know about Jesus. Uh, thousands of people, have seen his testimony because of this. But one day, Jim got another call. Because Ricardo soon got sick again and was in the hospital again. And this is a quote from his book. I'll just read it to you. He said, The last time I saw Ricardo a year later, his weight had dropped again. I'm so tired, he said. I fought this disease long enough. I just want to go to Jesus. I can go now because you have me on film and everybody will know in years to come what Jesus did in my life. He passed away not long afterward. You know, there was no doubt that Ricardo was saved. But Ricardo reaped what he sowed in the end. And that principle is all throughout Scripture. And the funny thing is, is that a lot of people want to go out and sow their wild oats, and then they want to come to church and pray for a crop failure. You know what I mean? Numbers chapter 14 and verse 39. This isn't in your storybooks, but after Moses shares with Israel that they don't get to enter the land because of their unfaithfulness and their unbelief, the Scripture says this, Numbers fourteen thirty-nine. when Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Israel says, "So we're so sorry, God. We're so sorry that we did this. We're so torn up about what we did. But God says, okay, I forgive you, but I'm still not going to let you into my land. I'm the God of grace, but I'm also the God of justice. Second takeaway this morning, no amount of unbelief can keep God from accomplishing His purposes. God's purposes will not be thwarted by the unbelieving. God made it real, real clear. I promised Abraham that I would bring his people into this promised land. And if you are not willing to take this land, I'm going to raise up another generation and they're going to take it. Right? The, the unbelieving people will not keep God from accomplishing His purposes. You hear people talk a lot about, oh, I'm so worried about the future of the church. You've heard people say that before. And I think sometimes we forget who owns the future. Don't you just get tired of people who run around and criticize in their effort to, quote, save the church? And I'd remind you folks this morning, the church already has a Savior. It's always had a Savior. And the kingdom of God is in good hands because it's not in our hands, it's in His hands. God is never wondering what He is going to do if this generation is disobedient. He'll raise up another one. God will accomplish His purposes. But the fascinating thing about God is that He wants to accomplish these purposes through you and me. That is incredible to me. That He would use people to accomplish His purposes. Which leads to point number three. We must be willing to take what God wants to give. The Israelites were made to conquer, not to wander. And I believe that God gives us the same marching orders today. God gives us the same chance to take what he wants to give us. In other words, I believe God is calling the Shelburne Street Church of Christ into enemy territory in order to take it. Canaan isn't just a metaphor for heaven. Canaan is a metaphor for what God wants to give us in the here and now, today. He wants us to move in on enemy territory that's occupied by Satan and conquer it. He wants us to do this, and He wants to do it through us. He wants to do it through you. God wants you to march into enemy territory and take it. And you might say, but there's giants in that land. But look what God says about giants in Deuteronomy chapter 9. This is on page 85 and 86 in your storybooks. Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 through 3. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess a nation greater and stronger than you with larger cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said. Who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes Ahead of you, like a devouring fire. You know, what stands between this church and our lives in a lost city isn't the strongholds of Satan. What stands between you and I reaching broken and lost people isn't the giants of addiction and selfishness. What stands between you and I taking what God wants to give us is the belief in a God who is bigger than. Than the giants belief in a God who is bigger who goes before us and consumes the enemy I like to ask the praise team if they would to come up I just want you to imagine for a second what this church would look like and what my church would look like if some men and women didn't just believe in God but if some men and women actually believed God. That He wants to give you enemy-occupied territory. Yes, it will be costly to you. Yes, you will have to fight hard for it. And yes, there are giants in that land. But the alternative is that God uses someone else. And you miss out on the greatest adventure and life that God wants to give you. So let me close with this question. Are you willing to take what God wants to give you? Or will you wander? Because you and I were made to conquer, not to wander. Let's stand and worship the Lord.